part two of our Boston Strangler slash Albert DeSalvo uh, episodes. Uh, apparently they're going to be a two-parter because we can't yeah, we get enough. we're really good at holding ourselves down to one-parters. When did we get good at it? I don't think we got good at it at all. We, only did, we, did. Two, we only did two episodes that were one-parters. <laughs> Everything else is a two-parter. Oh, well, we did three plus two companion. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I don't know. I like when we get on a roll, so I'm we, cool Yeah, we're, we're, we're on a roll. So, okay. welcome back, Scarletto. <laughs> Sorry, folks, but uh, we could ramble all day. All right, so let's get back to it. So, Albert Henry DeSavo, born September 3rd, 1931, in Chelsea, Massachusetts, in and out of trouble with the police from an early age. Uh, not surprising, considering his upbringing. We've talked about his father and the challenges he had as a child, the abuse that he suffered, um, you know, his mom and seeing her abused by the father certainly was some terrible modeling for relationships Sorry. for the future. Awful. Um, you know, he also had some issues, um, some sexual issues, you know, as he got older that we'll talk about. So there's a lot, to, um, as Brittany says, to unpack about DeSalvo. Albert DeSalvo, born on September 3rd, 1931 in Chelsea, Massachusetts. Um, you know, he had a tough life. Yeah, he, uh, or at least an early life. A tough early life, for yeah. sure. He had a brother and a sister, and he lived with his mother and father. Um, it's said that his father was very, very abusive to not only his mother, but to the kids. He was an abusive alcoholic. Uh, a couple terrible things that he did to, uh, the father did to Albert's mother, was broke all of her fingers by snapping them backwards and knocked out all of her teeth. In front of the kids. Of course. Yep. Um, it's said that he really wasn't interested in having the kids around and at one point sold them off to a farm for $9 and yes. then got them back for some apparent reason. Yeah, got them back. But before he even did that, he would bring prostitutes home and have sex with the prostitutes in front of the kids. Yeah. And, all right, got to ask you this about this. Uh, I saw on one of the documentaries I, I was watching that... Uh, his father introduced Albert to sex at seven years old. That's probably true. How? Introduced sex to him with a prostitute? No, that's what I, that's exactly where I'm going with I, I don't. I'm not sure. That's what I don't know. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if, if Albert DeSalvo was um, abused, sexually abused. Oh, I'm, oh, that, I, that I'm surprise certain me at that all. probably happened. And I'm, I'm just curious. I, I can't. Unfortunately, as, as horrible as this is, and this is... I guess, to my positive upbringing. I can't even imagine a seven-year-old being exposed to sex or introduced to sex, as it said. Uh, yeah, you know, I can't either. I, like you, um, you know, it's beyond my comprehension because I just didn't, I didn't ever have to deal with that when I was young. Right, exactly. Um, but, you know, I, the closest that I can think to anything I've ever heard that included specific details about those kinds of relations <laughs> um, with children and with adults mm -hmm. was honestly that Leaving Neverland documentary. Oh, yeah. um, you know, yeah. the graphic nature of that documentary, which if you guys haven't seen it, you know, it's about it's Michael, Michael Jackson. Jackson. Uh, the, the, the victims, I'll leave it, the alleged victims, I'll say just to leave it open-ended, even though I think it's all pretty clear about what happened um you know the detail in which they discussed those crimes and regardless of whether they were true or not it it was just so awful to hear that someone would look at a child like that um it's uh, de disgusting beyond comprehension and uh, you know obviously there's some mental problems there with a person who would who would want to have sex with a child yeah you've got some real issues 
Albert DeSalvo was in and out of trouble at a young age, not surprising considering the uh, challenges he had at home, the abuse he suffered. Um, I don't think they had a lot of money. Things were a bit, you know, tight in Boston, and I think in the area he grew up was not a very nice area. Um, we see 12-year-old DeSalvo first arrested for battery and robbery, um, you know, at such a young age. Mm -hmm. I mean... Battery is what really surprised me. Robbery, I feel like... <laughs> okay, sure, but battery is really something. Well, who, at 12 I, years old. Who did he batter? I mean, well, he's yeah, 12. That's like, what I mean. He's like, kind of probably a well, little guy. So, he wasn't a big guy as an adult. You know what? Actually, one thing that we didn't talk about, and I, I meant to... Uh, so, battery, yeah. I don't, I don't know who he battered. He's a little 12-year-old boy. But... He was previously, as was mentioned, he was sold into slavery to work on a farm, he and his two siblings, for a total of $9 total for all three of them. And when that happened... Oh, my God. Are you serious? Yeah. Not each? No, not each. Oh, for God's sake. I know. Sakes. It's awful. Oh. Uh, That's terrible for your self-esteem. It's, it's awful <laughs> not, to... Well, okay, let alone... It's child slavery. <laughs> I no, guess that's an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, yeah. fine. What, big picture here. <laughs> Sold into child slavery. <laughs> or $9 is bad for your self-esteem. <laughs> or $3. Or $3. $3. But $9 would be cool. <laughs> Not really. Uh, Just kidding. <laughs> so, even before... And I don't think he was actually arrested for any of this, but even before he was arrested at age 12 for battery and robbery, he had a history of torturing and killing animals. Which we shocker, uh, yeah. Which <laughs> here is where I really started to see a lot of parallels to our favorite Ed Kemper <sighs> and the McDonald Triad. Now I didn't see the other parts of the McDonald Triad, but all roads lead to Ed Kemper for us. And as we've talked about, yes. there's a good reason behind that, but not because we really like Ed Kemper. Not because we really like no, not no, 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 no. Not to digress, but uh. You know, we have a, a, a absolute fascination with the actor who plays Ed Kemper on Mindhunter. Just to drop that in there in case he's listening. Yes, Cameron. and... Oh, God, what's his last name? I don't know. Hang on. Cougar? I'm not going to remember his last name. Then I'll be real creepy. Even <laughs> <laughs> an actor's last 27, name... 26 Sunset okay. Boulevard. <laughs> Just kidding. What? That's his address. Just kidding. It wasn't his yeah, address. So if you're, if, <laughs> if you're listening, Cameron Britton... We love that you loved our tweet. Uh, all roads lead back to Ed Kemper. <laughs> Thanks to your ass. amazing portrayal. <sighs> yeah, you're right. I'm a kiss ass. I will shill for anything. Uh, We're not creepy about this. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So, 12 years old, arrested for battery and robbery, <laughs> and sentenced to 11 months to the Lyman School for Boys, which, let's be real, it's juvie. Yeah. I mean, that's all it is. Or uh, what, what I like to call criminal training camp. <laughs> I like that. I hadn't heard that before. That's a good one. I just made it. Up. <laughs> You're welcome. That's really good. That's Sonia's little terminology. <gasps> uh, but it's true. It, I mean, it really you know, kind of is. prison, jail, those are places where people get better at crime. Unfortunately, there's no rehabilitation happening. Yeah. Unless no. you, which, good or bad, whatever, you know, you find religion. That yes, seems to I be the so. only way that people, you know, lean towards, you know, rehabilitation when they have a bigger purpose. And as we all know, religion gives you that for the most part if you need it. Or that's all. That's all I'll say. Or podcasts, because there are a couple of great podcasts that are recorded inside some major prisons. Oh my god, I love Ear Hustle. I know Ear Hustle's Jesus. really good. Uh, okay. So he's released from juvie, uh, criminal training camp after eleven months, and then is arrested again two years later at the age of fifteen for stealing a car. <sighs> well, I guess that answers my question about him knowing how to drive. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, in Boston, well, you know, some people didn't have cars, well, you know, it was public transportation. Yeah, but also at the same time, just because he stole a car doesn't mean he knows how to drive. What do you I, think? That might, that might have been how, how he did got... How did he push that, it? That <laughs> might have been how he got caught. He wasn't good at driving. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm just suggesting. What, what year was that? Uh, uh, what, what year was he born? He was born 31, so, so 15 years. So this would have been about, like, 46. 
Well, the fucking car you'd have to drive. Yeah. I mean, no power steering, <laughs> no power brakes. You'd probably have to turn a knob to get it to start. Like the kind of car in the forties yeah. is not. I love classic cars. Do you love classic cars? I'm... Don't don't knock classic cars. I love classic cars, but they're not easy, dude. Like oh, of I mean, not easy. I <laughs> sure okay. <laughs> Anywho. Anywho, we digress. All right. The, uh, so he was arrested again at 15 for stealing a car. Next thing I have for him is when he probably made what I think is probably a really good choice by enlisting in the army at age 17. Yep. I mean, if you're a, a young man at that time, um, he was 17, so that would have been after World War II, right? Uh, yeah, it actually would have been uh, 46, leading, 47, right, 48. Leading right into the Korean War. Okay, got it. Fair mm-hmm. enough. Um, you know, sure, hey, if you need some structure in your life and there's nothing else out there and you will likely get drafted anyway, you might as well just go in. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think I got the impression, and maybe I'm just making this up, though, he kind of took that as a as a positive step in his life. He thought this is going to give him some structure and somewhat of a purpose and hopefully keep him on the straight and narrow. Yeah, and I think for a lot of people who um, are looking for that kind of structure, the military definitely <laughs> helps. So I'm, I'm glad that he had the at least the foresight to think about that and to try. For sure. Whether or not that helped or not, we'll... we'll See, we'll discuss. He uh, he served his time, and he was honorably discharged. And then he decided to re-enlist again, uh, this time as an Army police sergeant. So he, why, why enlist again when all you have to do is just stay? Do you have to, re, do you have to re-enlist, or do you just stay? I mean, isn't, like, they're career military people, there, right? Yeah, they're definitely career military people. I think that... I think that when you re-enlist, essentially, I might be totally wrong, so please correct us on Facebook or Twitter uh, if we are wrong. But I think it it's kind of like he served his time, maybe wanted to get back to civilian life, maybe couldn't find a career or a job and decided to re-enlist again because he knew he had something that he could go back to. Got it. So let's talk a little bit about when he met his wife. Yeah. Her yeah. guard, Beck, right. who he met while he was in the military. Um, she was from Germany. She was. So was that during his first or his second round? I'm pretty sure that was during his second tour. Okay. I think during his second tour, this is where he had some issues with the military and disobeying orders, if I'm not mistaken. He was court-martialed for disobeying orders. Uh, the, ultimately, I guess it was thrown out or he he wasn't held accountable and it never really came back to affect him got it so uh btw uh-huh i think i know where you're going there was also a situation that i heard about on one of the many podcasts that i listened to the my favorite podcast about this this particular crime and the Boston Strangler and DeSalvo, I thought the most informative was the podcast Serial Killers. Yeah, me I, too. I love their format, and um, you know they just do a really good job. And and while you know I, I just really like it. It's it's my jam. I totally get what they're going for. Um, but there was in, in this time, it sounded to me like I guess DeSalvo had gone over to some one's house while he was in the military and there were young people there he went there um it sounded to me like this was planned he went there there was a young girl there named lucy she was 12 um and then there was a a seven-year-old and a toddler there as well and uh, he goes in and proceeds to by the way I don't know why people are leaving their kids at home by themselves because Lucy's 12 and she's got these other two boys, two kids, as young as one. You know, so he comes over, he knocks on the door, he talks his way in. I forget what he said, but it was something persuasive. So he's there with these young children. Um, The middle boy takes the toddler to put him in his crib. And at that point, of course, DeSalvo and Lucy were alone. Yep. And uh, sounds to me like DeSalvo did some uh, inappropriate touching and uh, got himself into some trouble because Lucy told on him. Rightly so. Rightly rightly so. 
uh, yeah, huh? Um, and I'm not sure why. I think she said no, and she, you know, she, you know, got him away from her. But I don't know what else would have kept him from. Did he just leave or whatever? You know, I'm not sure what no, happened. No, no, I don't it's, know. It's all a the bit unclear. This was while he was in the service, right? Yeah. Yeah. So also while he was in the service, he would boast that he slept with more than 2,000 women. Yeah. He had a, a pretty um, voracious sexual appetite. Yeah. But let's go back to Lucy for a second. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. this is what I find really disturbing okay. and where I'm like, okay, could we could we have done something about this and sort of stop this behavior earlier on? It sounds to me like Lucy's mom, at the very least, um, wanted to press charges at first against DeSalvo. Uh, the military police was aware of his actions. And then later, it, the mother of Lucy then retracted, saying that she didn't want to put her daughter through it. It was embarrassing. Mm -hmm. And so he mm -hmm. was actually not tried, um, uh, you know, for the crime. But the military police knew about it. Yeah. You know, so... I mean, I get it when somebody's not, you know, going to press charges, but do you always have to have someone pressing charges before you're found guilty of a crime? I don't know. Well, I don't think so. I, I don't know about, because ultimately... You're a military police officer. Well, yeah, you're a military police officer. I, I don't know how it works in the military. I mean, it's, when it's in the general public, the victim doesn't actually press charges. It's the state or the county that presses the charges. Right. Of course, it makes it much more difficult to do when the victim is unwilling to cooperate. And a lot of times when you say, I don't want to press charges, it just means you don't want to deal with it and you're not going to be part of the investigation. And so a lot of times then I get thrown out. I don't know how it works with a, a court martial and a court or, uh, excuse me, a, a court-martial in the military and a military investigation. So, uh, I mean, I guess the reality is, is if she wasn't willing to testify, and she's a 12-year-old little girl, yeah, it was probably traumatic. Um, if, you know, she was the only witness, you know, really, there probably wasn't any case. Yes. So, you know, that sort of sort of disintegrated. And, um, you know, but he had some issues. He had some issues in the military. He did meet his wife. Ermgard Beck, again, a girl from Germany. They got married. He, um, you know, it, it appears that he really loved her. You know, he felt strongly about her. Yes, he I don't did. know if he was abusive to her. They had children together. Um, he was really, <clears throat> really forthright about his sexual appetite and his inability to be fulfilled by his wife and his marriage to her. And, hey, I'm going to say out there, because this guy, I mean, I, I hear this all the time, you know, men and women always use this, you know, oh, I'm not getting enough sex at home, <laughs> so I'm going to have sex with somebody else. But <clears throat> in this circumstance, I think his appetite was more than anybody could have satisfied. And right. I don't think his sexual appetite was, again, about sex. I think it was about power. I think it was about power. So I want to talk about that a little bit. So it was mentioned, of course, that... Uh, well, he was serving. He met Armgard in Germany. She moved to Boston with him after he was honorably discharged, even though he was court-martialed. And they had two children, but I want to first talk about their first child, uh, a daughter, who the official diagnosis was not... Uh, I, I couldn't find it. Um, as far as I know, it, it wasn't revealed. But the first child... The daughter was born with a very serious, very rare pelvic birth defect. Um, I have my theories as to what that could be, but that's for another podcast. Uh, <laughs> and it was advised by uh, physicians that Ermgard not have any more children because the future children could be worse than their daughter. So you think that's true now? No, or you think okay. I don't either. No, no, I don't. But, I, I disagree with that. But well, what if? I, I guess it's one way to avoid so, it potentially happening. Well, so, yes. So yikes. I mean, that was a very, very common belief up until thirty-ish years ago. Hmm. Um, so, but anyway, so the reason that Arkar knew about uh, Albert's sex addiction, though I don't think it was actually called a sex addiction at that point, but she didn't want to have sex with him, not because she didn't want to have sex with him, but she because she was so fearful of getting pregnant with another child who was worse off than their daughter. Now, ultimately, 
she would become pregnant and give birth to a healthy son later on. But I think that the reason that she tried to avoid him and tried to avoid having a sex life was less about his strong desires and more that she was very fearful of what could happen. I got it. But they got over that. They they did get over that. They got over that. They had a child. And from what I understand, apparently, you know, back in that time, you were told that if you had um, a child who had issues, you it, the best thing that you could do would be to quickly have another child um, that would help you get over that. Because until you had, there was some psychosis about mm. you having a child, and until you had a child that was healthy, you would never get over it. Which, you know, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. But um, there, fortunately, there's a lot, you know, better psychological, you know, help and conversations and you you can you, you that's not the way to achieve that there are a lot of other ways to achieve that goal as well so, all right uh so all right now after uh the you know, after they're back in the states uh back in boston making a life for themselves albert's first foray as an adult into crime started in 1961 and how did he do that he took on the moniker, or what became the moniker, the Measuring Man, <laughs> which I think we I think we mentioned this in our Boston Strangler episode. Uh, this is such a great story. I'm going to actually do this. <laughs> I but, you can't do this. Well, this is okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say something personal about my boyfriend, who's gonna be really pissed. Oh, he's gonna love this. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. But we have a running joke in our house that you know he uh, is an amateur gynecologist or an amateur, you know, breast whatever. He'll you know he'll give you know give uh-huh. you a mammogram for free. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And uh, that's kind of this measuring man bullshit. That's that literally what this is. You know, so. I mean, dude, like, who falls for this shit? Well, uh, apparently, Boston women in the early 1960s fall for this shit. Oh, because, my God. Uh, it's so, like the worst pickup line in the world. If you go anywhere in L.A., some guy wants to measure you. No shit. <laughs> so, so he would go door to door selling something, air quotes, and then a woman. This is this is great. Like, it's it's so awful and ridiculous. I can't help but kind of laugh at it that people fell for it. So he would go door to door pretending to sell something. Women would open the door. And he would be oh, aghast at their <laughs> beauty. Jesus Christ. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Ladies, please. And he would essentially forget about the things that he had to sell because he suddenly became a modeling agent and would ask the women to put on a leotard. So he could get their measurements because they were future models. Why does he want him to put on a leotard? Just be naked. What's the big damn deal? Well, I think to your point, I think he said before something about being a more conservative time. It's more likely to have a woman is willing to put on a leotard than to get naked for a stranger. I guess. Leotards are a pain in the ass. I mean, Oh, anywho. Okay, so, ma'am, could you please put on the leotard I brought with me? Is that what you're saying? He brought not, a leotard I'm, I'm with a, him? I'm actually not or sure. Or, ma'am, do you have a do leotard? Have a leotard? Can you put on a leotard that's right, right there, and then I'm going to measure you? Um, oh. So, here's, here's, I mean, now he I'm... like Sir Mix-a-Lot. Well, <laughs> So I'm going to get a little weird here and don't just weirder than it's been. Don't judge. Don't judge. But I would. And please, ladies, don't get offended. Nobody get offended by this. But my guess, I have to work with you every day. I know. Sorry. Well, then I've already offended you many times. You're used to it. What I will say about this is that. And what DeSalvo says about this in his confession, and I would probably say he's partly right, is this probably worked on many women unfortunately and not only did it work on many women but it sounds to me like he was successful at you know having sexual relations with them and Mm -hmm. you know really taking advantage of the situation it sounds to me like the only people who had a problem with it are the ones who complained but there had to have been some that did not you know have a problem with it and went along with it you know he bullshitted his way through it he achieved what he wanted you know call you later you're fantastic i'll put you on my list of models and 
you know, go with God. And that's pretty much what he did. But I bet he was pretty successful in some of his attempts. Oh, he was very successful. And most of the women didn't complain because they thought that they were going to get a modeling contract out of it. It wasn't until months went by and they never heard back from this modeling agent that they started to talk about it and to say something. Well, here's the other part that I'm just going to be 100% honest about this. Albert DeSalvo was not a bad-looking guy. No. He was had a decent build. He wasn't, I mean, in the scheme of things, he wasn't an ugly guy. No, he I wasn't mean, an ugly guy. Yeah, and so that probably helped. Um, you know, he, if he was, you know, a very unattractive man and, you know, he wasn't well-kept, this probably wouldn't have worked. But um, he was charismatic. Mm-hmm. He was mm-hmm. a career criminal. He was moderately attractive, and he had an incredibly strong sex drive. So he he probably had his, you know, spiel worked out. He, he probably was good at it. He was probably charming. Um, you know, he – it was effective. And so, yeah, it worked. You know, it worked a lot. And I don't necessarily believe Albert Salvo and all of his bragging because apparently he was known as a braggart and, um, you know – Nobody to me. What I see when I see these people talk about Albert DeSalvo and his correlation to the Boston Strangler, and if he could have done it, was, you know, most people thought he was full of shit, and they dismissed him because of that. Mm-hmm. But there's some reality to what he talked about. I mean, sure, he probably lied a lot, yeah. But the crux of what he said, I think we all find at the end of the day, based on DNA analysis, that you know he he actually did some of this. Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, I think it's proven that he you know, at least achieved one, you know, and isn't that enough, mm-hmm. you know, when you compare it to all the other, other pieces of this and the details. So we'll, uh, we'll pause on that one for now, but I just wanted to call that out. Like, you know, here's a moderately good, good looking guy walking up to, you know, a single woman's apartment saying, put on a leotard. I want to measure you. And then proceeding to, um, you know, compliment her and to bed. Yeah. So, okay. I did want to ask you about that because he was, he was arrested and served 11 months in jail, but what was his sentence? Because was certainly he, as he was measuring them, he fondled the women. Uh, but it, it seemed like what I... <laughs> I think he did more than that. Well, is that, actually, that's what I want to ask you about, because it seemed like what I found was he was actually only convicted of like fondling and peeping Tom. I didn't see anything about sexual assault, and fondling could be a type of sexual assault for sure, but that's not what he was charged with. He wasn't charged with sexual assault and rape, I don't think. Uh, yes. Actually, he was. He was. Yes. Okay. Yes. So he was known as a con man. He was known as oh, a yeah, B&E guy. <clears throat> so Wait, you keep saying B&E. Breaking Brock, and entering. Breaking and entering, that's, that's right. fancy lingo. Yeah, yeah. Crime lingo. Get with the program. lingo. <laughs> I can't remember anything, so I just say it like that. Um, here's what a, a piece of information I got out of biography.com that I thought was interesting here because this was the first time I had heard exactly what he had done that got him into jail when he decided to confess to the Boston Strangler murders. Uh-huh. So <clears throat> it says, after a spell in prison for breaking and entering, yeah. DeSalvo went on to commit more serious crimes. He had broken into a woman's apartment, tied her up to a bed, and held a knife on her throat before molesting her and running away. The victim gave the police a good description, one that matched his likeness sketch from his previous crimes, and then shortly thereafter he was arrested. So, and this was this was during the measuring man time, measuring man slash green man time. Okay, yeah. And um, <clears throat> while he was in jail for these crimes, he this is when he confessed. So I find it really interesting because. I mean, he pretty much did the same to these other women that he was successfully, you know, as if the, you know, as a, if he was a Boston Strangler, as we, you know, sort of know yeah. that he at least committed one of those crimes. You know, he was, he, it was really this very similar. What's the difference? Well, it was similar, but I think he went to prison first for the measuring man. Then he was released and then he became the green man to do the Boston Strangler. Murders. He was in, yeah, he was in, well, this says that he was, he spent time in prison for breaking and entering. Okay. And then he must have gotten out. Yeah, right. And that's when he did the green man slash measuring. I'm not sure, I don't think there's any, I think that he did the green man Uh rapes and the measuring man rapes 
I think he did those at the same time. It was just really, um, I mean, all, all the only difference was his method. Got it. Okay. That's I mean, you true. know, he was yeah. going in as the pink guy who had the green clothes on versus the measuring man who had this whole, I'm going to flatter you and you're going to be a model shenanigans. The people bought. End result was the same. <clears throat> so now we'll talk about, um, you know, when he, essentially DeSalvo's in jail. He's put in jail for this. He's arrested. This is 1965. Um I will say at this point, if you have not listened to the Boston Strangler episode yet, this would be a good time to listen to the Boston Strangler because we're not going to go through all of the events, the murders of no. the Boston Strangler again. Most likely they're tied to DeSelvo, which we'll discuss shortly. But if you want to pause here, plop the Strangler episode in the middle, and then come back to talk about the sentence for DeSelvo, that's where we're going now. Yep. So as we said... You know, DeSalvo was arrested for this, you know, breaking into women's apartment, tying them to the bed, holding a knife on them, molesting them, and running away. You know, so obviously he wasn't gonna he wasn't going further in killing anybody any anyone yet per that that we know of. Um it it isn't it said, um, it was after he had been picked out of an identity parade that DeSalvo right. admitted to robbing hundreds of apartments Boy. and carrying out a couple of rapes. He then confessed to being the Boston Strangler. Now, to me, this isn't a surprise. I am not surprised by women not coming forward and saying um, that they were raped. I because agree. <clears throat> if you if you think about the time, very conservative, the general populace would have judged these women on letting putting themselves into this situation. They would have probably been blamed for it. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, why did you let him in? Why did you go along with this? You know, whatever. You know, and and it just wasn't something. Even now, people don't. You know. You it know, still goes unreported a lot of times. A lot of times, and especially it goes unreported for men. More so men yeah, now yeah, than women. Definitely. At least more women are, are actually coming out and talking about it. But, you know, it's just terrible to think that people feel like they're it should be ashamed or embarrassed or be or will be persecuted or judged for in somehow or another participating in their own rape, which is a bananas. So screw you people, you know, for doing that to these folks. Um, but it happens all the time. Especially when you're talking about, you know, um, uh, in, in a court. In a court of law, when you've got a prosecutor, you know, and you've got a defense attorney, those guys are vicious, and they will absolutely go out, go after the victim and disc try to discredit them to ruin their credibility mm -hmm. so that they can get their, you know, whoever their guy off that they're trying to defend. So those guys, those people, guys, women, right. whatever, the very worst kind of people, because anyone who would, um, you know, try to discredit a, a victim who had the strength to come forward is just beyond me. So before he was picked out of a lineup, I want to actually talk about the ensuing event that led to his arrest or uh, led to him ending up in a lineup. Okay. Got it. Go for it. Uh, I, I have a gap in my information. Uh, I would uh, like to know. I'm excited. I got you on one. Um, okay. <laughs> so uh, actually on October 27th, 1964, in Connecticut, so he's actually branching out now, <laughs> he walked up to a home. This is the oldest trick in the book, guys. Don't fall for this. <laughs> Knocked on the door and claimed he had car trouble. Then the, uh, the guy, the, the man who answered, clearly didn't believe him, didn't allow him into the home. DeSalvo tried to force his way in and push his way in, and the guy who would go on to be a uh, police chief, Richard Spruels, fired shots at him. They were warning shots. He wasn't trying to actually hit him, but trying to get him outside, get him out of his house. So DeSalvo ran away. How many times do you think DeSalvo ever approached uh, um, a, a house with a man? Why would he do that? It's weird. I don't know. He may not have known that there was a man there. Unless this is going back to maybe he's de-escalating now and he's just looking for breaking and entering. I guess, but man, you know, I mean, I'm not saying he's a smart guy or anything, but um, man, you're you're not going to be as successful if you're dealing with people who aren't vulnerable and that you can't overpower. Exactly. Now, I think it was that night after this event, DeSalvo went for what seemingly would be become the Boston Strangler's last attack, but ultimately wasn't. He broke into, or he... Uh, Went to a woman's home, tied her up, just like the strangler did, 
started uh, began to or seemingly started to rape her or was going to rape her then stopped and said i'm sorry and left that's the i think that's the one where you know she gave a good description and then that's Ex- where that's the lineup exactly and then that's what led to yeah. her giving a description leading to the lineup do you recall <clears throat> do you recall in any of his cuz there you know again as we've already said you know DeSalvo confessed to being the Boston Strangler. Yep. He gave an extremely detailed and lengthy confession. Do you recall him talking about that at all? About this incident? I mean, yes. And the problem with the DeSalvo confession, in my opinion, is that they never released the tapes. Right. Um, they, <clears throat> so let's take a step back for a second. Attorney General Edward Brooke, you know, he had started this task force uh-huh. in 64, you know, because obviously he was getting a lot of pressure to solve this case. He put Assistant Attorney General John Bottomley in charge of the in- interviews and really the investigation. Uh-huh. Bottomley wasn't really a criminal attorney. This wasn't his area of expertise, and he certainly wasn't, a, you know, um, an expert at interviewing. He was very unorthodox is what I read. Yeah, like he essentially fed questions, fed okay. information through his questions. Uh-huh. Um, and it's said that the reason that he would he was fully responsible and fully controlled all of the tapes. I think it was six hours of tapes. Huh. Okay. He would only release the transcripts to really? everyone. He would never release the tapes. I don't even think the tapes exist anymore. There are a couple of little pieces that they played in court, but they're so poor quality mm-hmm. that they couldn't even really hear him. Yeah. Um, the transcripts have a lot of information. Sure. But the reason that Bottomley was said to have um, not wanted the tapes to be heard was because his unorthodox, you know, I'm air quotes, yep. you know, methodologies was that he was just a really, really crappy interviewer. <laughs> and that everything about the way that he interviewed DeSalvo um, gave him information that allowed him to confirm yeah. that he was the Boston Strangler. So, okay. you know, essentially he would say, you know, uh, for example, you know, okay, you know, Albert – you know, you have the nylons. What are you going to do with them next? You know, or when do you put, oh, when do I you see. put the, the, when did you put the nylons around her Very neck? Very leading. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if we are thinking about whether, I mean, if we take out the, take um, take the, take out of the picture that DeSalvo is, is guilty or to some of these crimes, to, to have a person or a witness or, a, sorry, a suspect who gets that kind of information makes it really hard to use that confession in the future because 100%. you pretty much told them everything that you want them to answer. Right. You know, that's not the way it works. So his unorthodox mean methodology was that he was just really bad at it. Okay. So, you know, and, and let's take another step back. Well, it's not really a step back. <laughs> so Albert DeSalvo confesses he's already in jail. Right. His cellmate or one of his, you know, peeps. Yeah, I think it was his cellmate. Uh, George Nassar. Uh-huh. Suggest to Albert DeSalvo that he meets his attorney, Ethley Bailey. Right. This is when the suggestion comes from Albert DeSalvo that he wants to write a book about being the Boston Strangler, but he doesn't want to get tried and convicted of the crime. So... Who else would you ask but Effley Bailey? Um, not surprising here at all. Um, and Effley Bailey, of course, you know, supported this oh, yeah. idea. Well, he said, first off, Effley Bailey is like the biggest dick I've ever okay, seen. Literally, like, I wrote, Jesus. Effley Bailey, stand up guy. OJ, Dr. Sam Shepard, and DeSalvo. Awful. Uh huh. And making money. Off of this, like major millions. This was said to be Effley Bailey's first, you know, financial coup. Okay. So not to blow it, but <laughs> Effley Bailey essentially said, "Yeah, I'll meet with DeSalvo for sure." And yeah, Effley yeah. Bailey was known as a, you know, he was a, he was known even back then as a really good um, defense attorney. He was incredible at cross examination. Uh huh. I mean, as we see in the OJ trials, I yeah. Mean, Obviously, he's really good at getting people off, um, you know, when it comes to crimes that they're being, you know, tried for. So F. Dilly Bailey meets with DeSalvo, and they construct this plan. Um, and, and part of this was the reason that George Nassar, in my opinion, really suggested this to DeSalvo was because DeSalvo and George Nassar were actually working together because they thought, you know, they would get the uh, – they, they would get the reward for figuring out who the Boston Strangler was. So oh, they were going oh, yeah, yeah. I'm like, you can't do that for yourself. <laughs> you can't turn yourself in yeah. and get the only reward. But good old F. Lee <laughs> Bailey, you know, he helped. 
He essentially constructed a deal and said, okay, we'll figure out a way to make this work. You know, so what will happen is you're, so you're already in jail, dude. You know, they really want to know who the Boston Strangler is. Right. Apparently he was in jail. He would have been in jail for long enough that it wouldn't matter. He he was already in long enough to where he was going to be there for a while or his life. So he had nothing, nothing Nasser to Nasser, are you talking about? Or? No. DeSalvo, yeah. Was he really? Well, he had to have been because why would he have... Why would he have put himself at risk? And he needed immunity. So, you know? okay. So, Go ahead, but I'll I'll come back to why I think he might have done that. Got it. So, Effley Bailey and DeSalvo worked together. Effley Bailey talked to the cops and said, Hey, friends, you know, because we're all buddies. I will interview DeSalvo for you. Right. And I will tell you whether or not I think he <laughs> is the Boston Strangler. And so... I hate Effley Bailey. Like, when I watch him in these interviews, I'm just like, you are just, if I have to lo- open the Webster's Dictionary and see disgusting attorney, you're it. Um, because to me, it's so contradictory to what, you know, justice yes, is all about. Yes. So, um, you know, so the police say, okay, well, the only way that, you know, we'll know for sure is if DeSalvo conveys information that only we would know. Right. So they gave him, uh, Effley Bailey a series of questions and said, yeah, you know, talk to DeSalvo, come back with the answers, and then we'll tell you if this, he's close or not. So Effley Bailey did that. Now, I've never heard of a, of a defense attorney <laughs> trying to prove their, their you know, their Their person. defendant's yeah. guilt? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He worked really hard at this, you okay. know? I, see, this is actually stuff I didn't see, so I'm oh, glad you're telling me this. Oh, my God. Okay. Like, it's the, it's the craziest thing. Uh-huh. And I don't think you should be allowed to profit from your crimes, for the love of God. No. Uh, but, no, he did, you know. And, and uh, at the end of the day, you know, uh, you know, not to go down that road, but Albert Salber really didn't profit much. Effley Bailey did, which is oh, the yeah, most he, disgusting thing. He, he's the one that profited the most. So he he get, he reads these questions to DeSalvo. DeSalvo gives the answers. Effley Bailey goes back to the cops, says, here's your answers. The cops say, ah, pretty close. Yeah, yeah right. You know, right. not surprising. Uh-huh. So then they're like, okay, well, yeah, let's do a deal with this guy. So they went in and they did a much more lengthy, um, you know, confession with DeSalvo. And they walked through all of the crimes with him. Um, they talked at length, I think they had six hours of tape, but they had six hours of tape, which turned into thousands of pages of transcripts. Um, you know, a lot of people disagree or, or as of 2001, disagreed about DeSalvo and whether or not he was the Boston Strangler right. or participated in any of these crimes. Um, the biggest piece of this was the the Sullivan family, who was the family of um, Mary Sullivan. Mary Sullivan, who was, his, who was the Strangler's last victim. Last victim. So they felt strongly that um, they wanted to know because yeah, yeah. they wanted to make sure that— The right person yes. was— yes. And they actually, I don't know if they worked with the DeSalvo family, but the DeSalvo family also wanted to know, or yeah. at least prove his innocence, even though, regardless if he was a Boston Strangler so, or not, he raped a boatload of people. I think I know where you're going. <coughs> yes. But before we get there, yes. before we jump ahead. Jump in. So, uh, all the craziness with F. Lee Bailey uh, and him profiting. So, in DeSalvo's confession, he... He provided details, and I don't know if these are details that he provided to Bailey or if these are details he provided to the detectives. To Don, to the only person he talked to, and nobody else could be in the room, was definitely Bailey. John Bottomley. Oh no, because he couldn't give his confession to. Yeah, well, that's what I was thinking. Okay, no, so John Bottomley. That's yeah, the Mister Unorthodox. That's the book. Yeah, that yeah. Essentially, let. So that's what I think. The big problem was John Bottomley screwed up the interview because I think it would have been a lot more clear whether or not that would have been DeSalvo or not way before two thousand one. Probably. Right, because he so he essentially he provided details that were never released to the public, but then he also contradicted very simple details. So yeah, it one of the, so the reason why I said I I question why he was why he may have decided to confess is we're gonna we're gonna jump back to I don't even remember if it was this episode or the Strangler episode at this point, but. The the FBI profile about a pretty ordinary guy who's usually a pretty good, nice person, but has instances of rage that just come out. DeSalvo would say in his confession that he would commit the crimes, then go home, watch the crimes on the news, be reported, and cry. So... 
Yeah, in his confessions. So let's go back a little bit. <clears throat> I'll go back to F. Lee Bailey. We'll, we'll hold that because yeah. I, I have more thoughts. Okay. Uh, we know for sure he profited, right? Yeah. Um, so we'll start there. There was one person in particular. I think it was Patricia Bissett. Uh-huh. The one who was found on December 31st, 1962. She was 23. Yep. The one who was covered up to her neck. Correct. This is the one in Albert DeSalbert's confession that he was the most upset about. And he said specifically, the, I, I liked her and she liked me. And oh. she treated me like a man. Hmm. So he was the most respectful yeah. of her. Uh-huh. He covered her up. Right. He didn't treat her the way he did the other victims. Right. He still killed her. Yeah. But he was raped he, and killed. Uh-huh. In the confessions, he cried. Yeah. He was very he upset. He was with extremely himself. emotional. Yeah. Um, so, you know, obviously that sort of leads me to believe, you know, control issues. Yes. You know, because he, he's got, obviously, I mean, look, we know he's a sociopath. You know, just his behavior yep. of getting into people's apartments, yep. right? Diagnosed as a sociopath. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, and he did know right from wrong. It just sounds like he couldn't control himself. Mm-hmm. Whether that's because of some of the abuse he suffered, maybe some, uh, you know, prefrontal lobe damage or yep. whatever it is, you know. I mean, we know that he escalated and he was torturing animals. So he's this is consistent behavior for what a, a serial killer, you know, you mm-hmm. would see. But, um, you know, it it's sad that he looked back on it and was sad about it, but it's too bad he wasn't sad enough in the moment to actually stop himself. Right. You know, emotional control is pretty typical when you come when it comes to head trauma. Yeah. So, and his dad, I think that his brother had said that his dad had um, picked him up and shaked him, shook him a couple times and threw him on the ground and just really threw him around the room when he was, a, like, you know, uh, wow. when he was young. Yeah, So right. I'm not surprised if he had some damage in those moments. Yeah. So um, the Patricia Bissett thing I thought was really interesting. It is really interesting. All right. So back to – so he's – he confesses. He goes to trial and is found not – I think he's found not guilty by reason of – Mental insanity or defect. He didn't go to... He was never charged with the Boston Strangler crimes. I'm pretty sure that he was. No. No. Hang on. He got immunity for confessing. No, because he definitely was... In nine... Okay, so after his confession, in 1967, he... DeSalvo went to prison, or uh, went to trial for... The measuring man yes. for God for the green the green man all all of that stuff which and, were bad enough oh yeah oh yeah there were many terrible. of them and yes, then he yeah, raped yeah. people so you know yeah uh, for sure enough to get him in a life in prison a sentence. life in prison so that's he, the only reason he he deal he agreed to this deal because he was going to be there anyway got it so he essentially was so he was found not guilty by reason of uh, insanity initially for what. For the the green man, all of, for his, his sexual assault crimes, likely yes. So uh, that was part of the deal that he worked out with Effley Bailey and the Boston DA. Yeah, because Effley Bailey told him, you know, you will never you will never stand trial for this. You'll get immunity, and um, you won't be judged for it either because you're gonna if, even if you do right. um, you will be safe because you will go to the you know the right. from criminally insane. So he so he was sentenced to life, not guilty, life to the Boston State Hospital, but then he actually escaped. Right. Yes. Yeah. He actually escaped. Yes. And then was found, and his conviction was overturned from not guilty by insanity to guilt, and then he was sent to prison. Yes. So that was what sixty seven, sixty eight, 60, right around there. Yeah, sixty seven is when he was found not guilty and went to the state hospital. Sixty eight is when he escaped and then was found and moved to the prison. Yes. So just to talk a little bit more about Effley Bailey and the participation in the catastrophe um you know because i think boston felt strongly that they did want to have this crime resolved right and apparently brooks you know edward brooke and john bottomley both felt like that they had the right guy based on the information they had Effley bailey of course thought that because he wanted to have a reason to be able to get royalties from a book that albert salvo (laughs) would help write um you know and then ultimately sell his story and just it's said that DeSalvo agreed to this deal because he wanted to make money not for himself which is probably true because he couldn't make money for himself but he could make money to give to his family so um none of that happened Essentially, as 
we know, and most of the time when these cases happen with these attorneys, is that their expenses are always paid first, and they're yeah. so astronomical that generally the victims get nothing or very little. Yeah. So not surprising here. Um, that was exactly what happened. DeSalvo really never got any money. Effley Bailey got his royalty uh-huh. uh, moving forward. You know, it, there was a, a movie about the Boston Strangler that Tony Curtis was yep. in. Um, there were obviously there's a ton of, of books, a ton of documentaries about it. So you know, DeSalvo became infamous. You know, and even though there were some people who disagreed that this was him, you know, for the most part, I think people wanted to believe that it was. He was off the street, yeah. and there weren't any more murders and happening. They, they, they stopped. They yeah. ended. Yeah. Right. So, all right, let's jump to where you were going before. 2001 uh, and uh, the family of Mary Sullivan and the DeSalvo family and how they came together. Okay, but first, yes. before we do that, okay, I want to talk about DeSalvo because DeSalvo continues to stay. He's in jail. Yeah. He stays in jail. Uh-huh. November 25th, 1973, DeSalvo is stabbed to death right. in his cell uh-huh. in his bed. Now, how that happens in a prison where whoever did this would have had to go through six, you know, six very levels secured, of security yeah, doors. Right. Um, obviously, it's questionable. Yeah. People are concerned about that. The other th- part that's interesting about that is the night before, he had called the head psychiatrist at the prison and told him that he wanted to recant his confession and tell the real story. Hmm. Now, whether we believe that or not, or did DeSalvo just want more attention, or or did he realize that he wasn't gonna get it, or he wasn't getting the money that he was promised. Right. So now he switches it up. Yeah. Now, you know, and of course, I'm sure nobody at that point had really like thought about the Effley Bailey piece of it, right. but there was a lot, you know, if Albert DeSalvo did come out and talk to anybody and told the real story, which is that, you know, his attorney essentially worked with him or, but worked against him at the uh-huh. same time. And this was just a big mess. You know, I'm sure there, there would have been a lot of uh, bad press for Effley Bailey and there were Definitely. probably police officers at the risk. There were Effley Bailey was at risk. There was a lot of people at risk in him talking. So, that next morning, he was supposed to talk to the the psychologist, and he was found dead instead. So the psychologist said he turned on the psychiatrist said he turned on the news, and DeSalvo had been murdered. Whether that has any correlation to anything, sure, but prob- interesting, probably not, probably not. What I understand Something happened. To think about. Yeah, what I understand happened to DeSalvo, um, which could still involve Effley Bailey in some way. Um, was that DeSalvo was, as we all know, petty criminal. You know, he tried uh-huh. to get away with a lot of stuff. In jail, it sounds like that he was um, competing with the uh, mob to for selling drugs in in prison. You never want to do that. Yeah, and so they just took him out. So it's a, it's as simply as that. Yeah, you know, that's probably true. They didn't need the competition. That's probably he had a big mouth. Yeah. He was a bragger. Uh-huh. Just shut him up. <laughs> You know, and and if that can help Effley Bailey at the same time or help the police because they're not going to have to hear from DeSalvo again, so be it. So that's 1973. So now moving on into July of 1999, which is, you know, 20, what, six years later, later. the Boston police reopened the case, hoping to use DNA technology to analyze. So now to your year 2000, um, when DeSalvo, the DeSalvo family and the Sullivan family both sue to be able to get to that evidence. Right. Because there was, in 99, they did do DNA tests, and they found that there was no, um, there's no, I, they couldn't identify DeSalvo um, as the Boston Strangler based on the DNA testing they did at that time. Right. And at that time, and of course, based on DNA testing from evidence that they had, from the original crimes, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, when they were brought together, though, I don't think they... Uh, I took it as though a... Uh, it was a uh, a writer who uh, essentially turned investigator that brought the Sullivan and DeSalvo families together to try and reopen this case. It's probably true. And... Uh, Every, all the, all, anybody who tells the story has a... Uh, you know, I mean, that's their incentive. Well, it's that's their incentive, money. but yeah, but I, I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't know that these families got there on their own. No, yeah. I, I agree with you. Um, so uh, in 2000, 
essentially the um, Mary Sullivan's remains were exhumed for DNA testing. They did some DNA testing and they found some correlation between um, the DNA that they found on Mary Sullivan and the um, like an ancestor of DeSalvo. So then they exhumed DeSalvo's and they tested, you know, his DNA. And in 2013, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, 2001, DeSalvo's body was exhumed. Um, and then the forensic scientists announced that the DNA evidence taken from the Sullivan's body did not match DeSalvo. So they exhumed Sullivan and DeSalvo both in 2001, and that's when they found that they didn't match. It was 2013 where they went through this again, and they actually tested the DNA from the crime scene and there not just from the DNA from Mary Sullivan when they exhumed her got the first it, time. Got it, got it. So they found a familial match. Um, it sounds like that they had either found the familial match with DeSalvo's nephew or his son. Uh, and the source was uh, seminal fluid that was maintained and uh, retrieved from the original crime scene. Right. And it, the, it appears DeSalvo, um, you know, the Boston Strangler, the seminal fluid that they found wasn't actually in their vaginas. It was on their face. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, you're right. Which I think is kind of what ofs. I agree. Um all right, so there we have it. So here's here's what I think. Yeah. <clears throat> I think that Albert DeSalvo was the Boston Strangler. Okay. I think that for a couple of reasons. Number one, the murder stopped yep. when he went to jail. The other reason I think that is because we have proof, DNA proof, that he, you know, obviously was the... He Mar- was Mary he, Sullivan. He yeah. murdered Mary Sullivan. He, uh, that's 100% guaranteed. Yes. So when anybody else says, you know, tries to break this case down and they say, um, you know, there, he, he, the details weren't there in the confession. When he confessed of the Mary Sullivan murder, the details in that confession were also wrong. He right. did not have all the details no, correct. No, he didn't. You're right. So then if you think about him, I mean, and we know he did that one. Yes. I'm not surprised that the details, he got the details wrong. First off, it's a lot of information. Six hours of tape. He'll pretty much agree to anything. He, he'll agree to anything at that point. And also, he did a lot, I think he did a lot of crimes that did not involve being the Boston Strangler. I mean, he, I think he was continuing to do the, uh, the measuring man and sexual assaults that didn't always lead to deaths and murder. So he did a lot of crimes that were probably running through his head that didn't always deal with murder. Yeah, I agree with you. It's, um, wow. I mean, it's, it's crazy, you know, to think that, but I, I think that sort of speaks a lot to, you know, if you think about, like I said, his, his confession and his inability to get his own crimes wrong, that at least one of them we know he committed, then right. what does that make? What is that for all the other confessions in the world? No, where, I, I agree. And how much do people remember? I mean, there, there's a, you know, the, that happened over a couple of years. I'm not surprised he got some of it wrong. And what we don't know, and unless you look at the transcripts, is he got a significant amount of the details right. He got most of the details right yeah. and, and, and key things details. That, yeah, exactly. Yep. Things that... He, he knew about the items that were under furniture. Ex- yeah. It would have been impossible unless he put them under the furniture for to him to be able to talk about this. Yeah. So the other pieces of it, sure. I'm not surprised that everything wasn't exactly accurate, especially if these were acts of rage, because you're probably a little blacky, blacked out or a little, you know, off at that point. Um, but, I mean, wow. I, I think he did it. Uh, there are some theories as to who the other people are, particularly people that may have had the opportunity to benefit from it. But I, I really do think it was him, uh, even though some of the MOs were different, some of the victims varied widely. Uh, if if he didn't do all of them, I think he was at least responsible for a, a solid majority of them. Yeah. The other thing that throws people off, and, you know, I'll tell you what I sort of heard from, you know, the the information from the transcripts. What throws a lot of people off is that he picked older victims at, at first. Right, exactly. And, and when he was asked about that, you know, like, if this was a sexual crime or, you know, whatever. Why older victims? You know, why older victims, you know, were, were you know, and, and what he said, and he was very frank about it, was it wasn't about being attracted to them. Hmm. 
And so it didn't really matter. No, that it was about no vulner- vulnerability. Yeah. So the time when he Which moved, makes sense. yeah, because he he you know he sort of got confidence yeah. when he had all these older people that he was able to successfully murder, and then he moved into Sophie, right? Right. The the first young victim. Right. There was a break there. I also think that <clears throat> his insatiable sexual appetite. I feel like if we knew, if I if I knew, and I could, I couldn't find a lot of information on his relationship with his wife, and even I could, I, I couldn't even find a lot of information about his kids. Yeah. But my thoughts are, and some people suggested this, that he was acting out, and his triggers were based on his wife being pregnant and his ability to, you know, have sex with, with her. her. And so in the moments where he was, they weren't happy together or they were arguing yeah. or whatever, these were lag moments where he actually went back to, you know, the that's Boston kind of I, That's kind of what I thought too. Yeah. So uh, not surprising, but. Hey. You're right though. There's not a lot out there about his family. No. I tried. Uh, yeah. So. Crazy. But that's, uh, we, uh, we know that Edward. Uh, or Albert Henry DeSalvo killed w- at least one at least. of the victims that were part of the Boston Strangler victims. So the likelihood of him being the person who did, committed the other crimes is probably pretty high. Um. All right. Well, I think that's we're going to wrap up this second part of our two part <laughs> about the Boston Strangler and Albert DeSalvo. I just want to mention, by the way, that we did this episode because Brittany suggested it because she knew that her dad was excited about this. So thanks, Dad. Here's for you. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, of course, give credit to our sources. Uh, Serial Killers Podcast, Sonia mentioned, uh, History.com, Wikipedia, Murderpedia, Encyclopedia Britannica, Biography.com, Daily Telegraph, Gen Y Podcast, the uh, Crime Weekly docuseries. <laughs> the list goes on oh, and on. Oh, yeah, we got a lot of them. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to leave you with a little piece of lighthearted slash facepalm news. Because in 1971, someone in the Texas legislature on April 1st, no less, as an April Fool's joke, opened a resolution... To honor Albert DeSalvo for his work in population control. What? It passed the Texas legislature. No fucking way. I swear Are to you. Are you for real? Uh-huh. Texas. <laughs> what the? Okay. We're ending there. Yep. Signing off. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Thanks Texas. Thanks, Texas.